The following is a conversation with Stephen Wright, an experienced underwriter with Probitus 1492. Stephen has 15 plus years of experience having worked across London and Australia. As we navigate through Cyber Security Awareness Month, Stephen offers a behind-the-scenes take on the state of cybersecurity insurance and, more importantly, talks about what he sees at the coalface in this ever-evolving IT threat landscape. And now, Stephen Wright. Stephen, do you want to just give a little bit of background about yourself and you know, how you've got to become a broker in this crazy world of cybersecurity? Thanks, Anthony, and thank you very much for listening. Um, I'm just one tiny correction. I'm not a broker. I'm an underwriter. An underwriter. Uh, so, what's the, what's the, what's the difference? So, um, very simply, the broker is the intermediary between the uh, end user of the insurance and the insurance company. Uh, and my job is to actually um, uh, assess, understand, and price the risk exposure on behalf of the insurance company. Right. Okay. There you go. Well, that makes a bit more sense then. But yeah, that's a good clarification actually in terms of understanding where the, these worlds sit. So a good mistake there to understand where it's coming from. So yeah, fill us in on the underwriting world then and where, you know, how you came into that. Absolutely. Um, so cyber insurance uh, as a product offered by insurance companies has been around for about 20, 25 years and was spun out of um, essentially privacy and data and the data exposures that certain regulatory uh, regimes around the world has, has um, in, you know, improved regulatory regimes around data protection. Um, fast forward to where we are now. Um, and my journey uh, started when um, I started underwriting tech insurance back in the late 2010s. And in the course of underwriting tech insurance, I got involved with a couple of large um, projects within the insurance company that I work for uh, to better distribute the insurance products. And that involved actually understanding the IT networks of the insurance company to enable better conduits and better means to actually get the insurance product to customers. Um, specifically in that project, it meant understanding how the network was structured and how we could better leveraged um, our own internal networks to distribute the products. Uh, and in the course of doing so, just better understood exactly what an IT network looked like, front end, back end, and stack in between. Uh, and then that improved my knowledge so that I could better understand ultimately what my clients were doing to better understand the risk. And then all the way back to the first point, understanding and pricing it. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you didn't, so your start wasn't really in tech at all, right? So actually what was, what was your, first sort of job sort of sector that you started in? They can, much like many people in insurance, uh, it's one of those industries that um, it kind of flies under the radar. It's incredibly important because it does underpin what essentially can happen or, or more importantly, what can't happen in the world. And I came into insurance after studying geology at um, university in a, in a science background. Um, and just through that, actually, but um, I, I started insurance um, understanding and insuring professional engineers and surveyors. And from that, um, understanding the breadth of professions out there, which led into to tech. Um, and ever since then, it's just been understanding the world of business and assessing, understanding and pricing uh, the essentially the exposures that business presents to um, the economy at large and um, uh, providing them with insurance products. Um, but a, a slightly different path to most people in the IT world. Um, unfortunately, I didn't tinker around with Commodore 64s or Ataris back in the day. That is that is uh, a pretty was... common thread on my other podcasts <laughs> that we do, The Great Things of Great Tech. That's a very common thread early in the day, right? So <laughs> you, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of a common thread in, in IT. But, yeah, but, but, it, but we all get to where we get to. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, you really, you, you found obviously a passion for it in, in, in stepping up 
to having to fill a void, particularly in that particular part of your career. And, you know, but how did you really develop the love for this, this particular part of the industry? Um, put simply, um, you can't avoid tech. It's such an integral part to everyday life that drawing the parallels from what you do on your day to day, literally just how you live your life through to um, doing it for, for a job. Um, you know, it, it, it's a really um, linear path to take. Um, but I think personally, um, I've always loved tech. Um, I've always loved um, the uh, mysticism around tech, but also the uh, potential illegality around tech. Um, but if I have to narrow it down to one or two instances, it was probably the Millennium series from Stig Larsson and the exploits of and Adventures of Lisbeth Salander, which really got me into the world of cyber. Oh. Yeah. from the mid 2000s uh, and then drawing the parallels as I mentioned at the beginning understanding the world of tech through my you know what we're doing a day to day um then kind of inspired me to want to keep understanding and delving deeper down that rabbit warren um and it wasn't too hard because as I mentioned it, it surrounds everything we do but importantly it surrounds everything that all businesses do and rely on um yeah. so as we as underwriters understand more about our clients um tech just goes hand in hand with exactly what they're doing so the underwriting industry in, in cyber and in, in tech is obviously worldwide. You're, you're based out of Sydney, Australia, yep. um, but you've had a you've had a global career as well. You've you've been in London. You've worked worked globally. So, you know, is there is there any particular sort of path that someone would take to to get into the underwriting world that that you didn't take, but would generally take to get to a point where they're working for a a larger company offering these services? Uh, absolutely, um, and you know. To be really specific to tech, we have, uh, and increasingly more so, um, members of the IT community have invaluable skills that can translate to the insurance side, you know, to, to the business side, where they um, bring with them the very, very technical understanding of um, networks and, and IT structures um, that are absolutely invaluable in terms of assessing other applicants own networks and footprints um we as an industry can provide the business side because ultimately we're a financial service and so there's a whole other world of business that we can um and help uh, anyone wanting to come into the industry with but if you come to us with some really specific skills you know such as an it background you know there's a, there's a whole world um within cyber insurance that would be welcome them with open arms yeah, I think I mean you know we we met each other a couple of weeks ago at a roadshow that we were doing as part of of Veeam ransomware myth busting, and it was a really mm -hmm. insightful conversation that we facilitated with a bunch of tech people um, at different levels. But one of the things, to your point, was about this elevation in the conversation from a technical to a business level, and understanding yeah. that as technical people now we have to be able to talk at this business level because it's the business that gets impacted by the decisions that we make as technical, um, you know gatekeepers as such and understanding mm -hmm. the decisions that we make today in terms of what tech we put in how we how we configure it how we manage it that's very impactful at a business level so it's very important for tech people who are making their way up and are, are responsible for certain platforms applications whatever it might be need to be able to speak to the business to the c level right and i guess that in itself and what you were talking about is a is a is what you guys do as well so you guys could potentially bridge that gap hundred percent. Um, I mean, most um, underwriters in this field will have come from a very similar professional, uh, what we call professional alliance background, and and are used to articulating, um, you know, um, 
risk assessment to the C-suite or to more commonly in large companies, uh, an insurance risk manager who's responsible for all types of insurance. So we've had, uh, or many of us have had years and years of experience at that level. The um, And what we're all catching up on now is the speed of technological change. Um, but absolutely, the... Um, the ability to translate the technical um, world that you guys support up to the board level, up to the C-suite is incredibly important and will become more so um, if only from some recent very high profile events, um, yeah. which don't need naming, but yeah. when they hit the national headlines and they get the eye of governments around the world, um, uh, and, and I'm not trying to um, be facetious for any executives listen to this but you're probably not going to want your IT manager to front the press you as the CEO need to front the press and you have to understand yeah. the um, potential severity or more importantly um, just know exactly what's going on so that when you're briefing the rest of the world you come out with the best possible story yeah exactly right like you're, you're correct in terms at the end of the day the buck stops with the leader of yeah. the company right it's typically this the CEO that has to get out there and we have seen every well, in, in all of the sort of major ones that I can think of this year, last year, the CEO was the one who had to front the press and talk about how this was very damaging. And you can you can see the pain and the it, it, there's a lot of uh, emotion that goes into it, right, at various levels. But we talk about, I mean, we'll get into it a little bit later on, but the brand reputation damage, the, it's almost like a bit of a shameful thing to admit that it's happened. And I don't believe it should be shameful in today's world. I think we could treat it a bit differently, but there is still that level of embarrassment because the brand has been impacted, right? So yeah, being able for, for you to be able to, to coach these guys to be able to speak in the right way, that's a really good thing. Talk talk about the evolution of insurance in cybersecurity since you've been in, 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 in the gig, right, in, in this world. Yeah. How has it evolved? How has it changed from... You know, 10 years ago, I assume that it's just gone exponentially more difficult, more technically challenging in terms of the level of sophistication of what's happening in this world. So, yeah, give a bit of a background on that. It is all of those things. I think if I look back to 10 years ago, um, there was a definite need and, and the financial services in fairness have led that uh, and have led that for many, many years because there's a fiduciary duty to make sure that financial institutions hold on to money. And whether it be from physical heists back in the day through to computer heists, a bank knows that its money is always potentially on the line. But if you look more practically about, um, say from the last 10 years onwards, um, it's the day-to-day -day impact, uh, operational impact, which has got the headlines the most. Um, so prior to 20, well, probably prior to quote COVID, um, we were certainly selling lots of policies um, where there was a defined um, data exposure. So specifically in Australia, we moved from a, a voluntary um, notification scheme through to a mandatory no notification scheme. So the types of businesses that retained lots of information would see a definite need for it. They probably wouldn't see the ransomware or trying to um, potentially pay a cryptocurrency extortion threat as the main reason to buy the the policy. But as we look to the end of the 2010s and we see the increase in the number of ransomware or just criminal elements getting involved with uh, attacking companies for whichever purpose they had, suddenly the impact to operations was nothing to do with the data. It was actually, we can't do any business. Yeah. Uh, so businesses, and we all know some very, very famous ones that um, it's no nothing to do with data, it's just to do the fact they can't actually trade. Um, that then precipitated the need for, well, where's the risk transfer mechanism? You know, um, if you have a flood, your, your property policy covers you when you're the building floods and you can't do business. Similarly, when you fall over and your staff can't get to work, 
exactly the same thing in cyber insurance where suddenly the threat vectors change, the implications for the business move beyond just pure data onto, into operations. Um, but it was the speed and scale of those types of events which then precipitated our side of the industry to say, oh, hang on a second, we've probably been not been looking at the right things in this particular um, uh, class of business. So from about 2020 onwards, when um, the likes of uh, some well-known criminal groups really started to uptick, um, we then uh, responded um, simply by the amount of money we were losing. We had to look at exactly where the losses were coming from. So we took the taxonomy of the losses, learned the lessons, applied that to the underwriting. Uh, and from a practical perspective, um, many of us in the industry then got on board with the likes of the qualifications that you and your peers all have around SIEM and, and CISP to make sure that we really, really understood uh, on the back of our the taxonomy of our claims losses to say, well, hang on a second, um, do we actually know how Active Directory is structured? And now we do. And now we can all talk to identity and access management. We can right. all talk to patching vulnerabilities and CVEs uh, to better understand where we feel um, the losses might potentially come from. So when we turn around and then we offer the policy, we know there's a reasonable degree of assurance on the, uh, the client side to say that we've actually had a really good conversation. They really know exactly what we're doing. It's almost like... Um, well, I would liken it to uh, risk engineering for property insurance from, say, 30 years ago, where uh, the engineer would look at the building and say, you know, your sprinklers aren't attached. Uh, there are no fire extinguishers. If you get all of those in the building, you're going to be a much better risk. Yeah. Exactly the same thing has happened on the, the cyber side over the last two or three years. Um, but really as a direct result of the amount of money that has been lost through the criminal activity. I was going to say, I think it's, you can analogize it from the point of view of how I see um, insuring a house in a flood zone or an earthquake yeah. zone, right? Whereas, you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, the science potentially wasn't there to understand the impact of building a house in a flood zone because maybe there wasn't a flood for 20 years. Um, and then if you look at, like I use Christchurch as a great example. I was in Christchurch earlier in the year and, you know, there's still buildings that are sitting there half crumbled because they still are fighting through the insurance of what yeah. happened to that big earthquake. And that was a long time ago. But like then when you're building a house there, and I know someone actually works with them who's building a house there and what they have to go through to, to get some level of insurance, depends where yeah. it is, you know, is, is, is how what's what's the foundation on? How big is the slab? You know, what are you putting into it to, to mitigate any potential future earthquake? So we're getting better at the science of that to understand exactly how to mitigate and how to control the policy just in case something happens in a higher risk area. So with cyber insurance, clearly, like you said, you were paying out a lot because it was getting a lot more day to day that this was happening, right? And, you know, let's be honest, like insurance companies aren't there to not make money. So you got to work it through. It's 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 a two way sort of it's a mutual sort of agreement, right? You help me, I help you a little bit. That that's the way it goes. So I I completely understand that. And what we have seen in the last three to four years is just this acceleration of technical advancement with regards to the sophistication of these attacks, the breadth of the attacks, the type of attacks. And then this year we've taken it in a whole new level because all of a sudden now we've got to deal with the scary element of AI and what that's allowed in terms of degenerative sense to make these yes. guys even better at what they do. So ha have you taken that into consideration? And I'm going to lead into another question around, is it harder to get cyber insurance today than what it was even 12 months ago, 24 months ago? 
Two great questions. I'll deal with the first um, off the cut. You can't escape AI. And I think um, the most practical application that most of your customers uh, and peers might have experienced would be what we refer to as business email compromise, where um, somebody hacks into uh, an email account and misdirects um, an invoice or alters an invoice to the recipient and Uh, divert funds. That's it. Um, That's actually something we determined to be a crime loss because... um, Ultimately, it's going to depend on the um, the person remitting the money to the physical human element of pressing send to the incorrect bank account details. And AI specifically will make um, the wording and the grammar around some of those phishing emails, um, which they normally stem from, either classic from the CEO or the CFO wanting to um, you to send some money over very quickly. I think AI, in a practical sense, will make those types of communications much harder for um, uh, certain types of uh, programs to pick up on uh, or yeah. from the human side it's just going to make human more, right yeah um, absolutely you know it's going to make it harder for them to spot um like um am i right like i think ai is a pandora spot for everybody so you know we may be proved wrong on that but on in the first instance because we consider that a crime loss um that's not something that's traditionally covered by a cyber insurance Interesting. Um, it should be co- yeah. It should be covered under a crime policy, and um, anybody listening, when they speak to their insurance broker, that is the role of the insurance broker to make it very clear which product covers which exposure. Yeah, going back to our but first to- point about the difference between a broker and an underwriter. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Say, so, but in terms of your second question about how is it being to get cyber insurance now, um, Nick. I think we've got better at it. Um, it's still a risk transfer mechanism in terms of uh, protecting a balance sheet. So um, I think we've, um, personally, the, the market has certainly increased its technical understanding, technical knowledge. So it's really uh, improved that. So when it comes to anybody looking for the the product now, I'm sure many of your listeners might have actually experienced the buying process, say, five years ago compared to now, where the range of questions that we use to assess the exposure has changed. It's, it's gone completely, you know, turned 180 degrees because we've moved to a very, very technical um, posture simply because, as I mentioned, the losses and the origin of the losses has um, opened our eyes to what can potentially go wrong. Yeah. But does it make it harder? Um, what I would say is um, if the questions, if the information is presented in such a way that, it, you know, it's attractive to a, a market and you get terms, then you have to take those at face value that absolutely it's, it's, it's not hard because you've got a price. Is it the right price for you and your, um, your business? That's where your broker is going to be absolutely invaluable in sca- uh, canvassing the market uh, to work out, um, depending on your, your needs and your budget, who has the best offer. Um, it will become hard um, uh, if some of the very basic elements are not covered. And what I mean by basic elements, um, everybody will understand the, uh, and I'm speaking from an Australian context, the uh, Australian Signals Director Essential 8, which is the you know the Essential eight, eight yeah. standard steps. CISA being um, Cybersecurity Month has some very, very simple four or five key elements that anybody should be doing, irrespective of insurance. And what I would say is, if anybody is not doing those you know really basic elements, they absolutely will find it hard to get insurance. And it's only because irrespective of insurance, they're potentially exposing themselves by not doing those basic uh, or yeah. reaching those basic levels. I think security. I was, I was going to say, 
you've, you've hit the nail on the head and you, I've had, I've had Gil Vega on this month um, episode that we released earlier. He, he was all about the basics, right? Getting the basics right. And a lot of people don't get the basics right. And that's the problem is that there's a bit of complacency that sets in at those basic levels because it will never happen to me. This is a big, bigger picture problem. Um, but, and I think that the complexity of the technology and the breadth of services that companies are now undertaking, whereas before it was very, you know, encapsulated within an on-premises location. It might have been a server at the back and it was easy for the, the Windows servers, the applications that ran on there. The network was all self-contained. Now we're talking about potentially using the public cloud. We're talking about using as a service um, and, then, and then mixing those together and opening different areas of your network to different... It, it's it's a huge bit of spaghetti that needs to be un, unwoven to be able to work out how secure am I. Um, and I was going to... We're going to talk about this later, but... That then speaks to me about the different type of breach. You know, because of the level of complication, you can either have or attack. You can have a breach, which is, you know, data gets basically exfiltrated and, and it becomes public. And that's interesting in itself. And the ramifications of that, like we've seen some very high profile cases in Australia and around the world on that. But then you've got the other side of it, which is more that malicious sort of encryption attack, which is driven by, by money or driven by just the, the desire to see the world burn, right? So the complication of how we do modern IT, making our lives seemingly easier with all these as a service in a certain aspect actually complicates the insurance side of it when you're going to get it because what you're going to be doing now is making sure that everybody has their I's dot, dotted and T's crossed in every aspect of their service. Well, absolutely. I mean, many of those, um, the convenience you talk about, is. I don't think it's intentional, but sometimes that's the um, uh, um, or security is the um, or lack of security is the byproduct of that. You know, you've got your as you mentioned, um, either on-prem or in the cloud, ease of access to all of your enterprise. But does that necessarily confer security within that? Uh, and many of the products, many of the services, probably don't. You know, and that's what's being exploited. Um, we're still here. I mean, even and and. Everyone will have their views on the insurance industry, but what I can say is that um, a compliant policy will protect anybody in the event that they do suffer any type of event that that, that falls within the policy. And it's really important to talk about that because um, we'll take the example of of move it. You know, it's an event that's happened. It's a data breach. It, it's led to um, tons of data being lost. Is that necessarily the responsibility of the insured who has the policy? Absolutely not. It's it, it's a problem within their IT supply chain, um, but our policy or, or the products available will definitely respond to that, um, and that's a really important thing to, you know, to make to make clear that um, um, convenience absolutely. Um, sometimes it's the um, expense of security, but um, there's absolutely a, a solution for um, people out there within insurance. Yeah, you've talked about um, expense and, and the business aspect of how much you know do you theoretically assign to a policy versus the risk I, I forget specifically how you talked about that risk risk something or another but is price a f obviously price is always a factor in business right it has to has to be but mm. is price are people looking at these policies and going i'm just going to take the risk because i don't see the value in paying for that amount or or is it price and i think we we, we did discuss obviously this is a, a podcast that's going to go out to the world so prices are going to differ no matter where you are but from what I heard in our discussions and in, in 
talking with the people that we had on the roadshow, it wasn't that expensive to, to cover this just for the inevitable. And I, I saw it as being, it's going to cost X amount of dollars. That to me is worth it. But do you come across people who question that expense and go, why? Because I think naturally we do that for any type of insurance. Uh, and this is no different. Um, unfortunately, you know, I'd love to say that we could meet everybody's expectations on that. And I don't think um, any insurance market around the world can do that. Um, but I think it's also um, how the company views risk transfer in the first place. Um, um, I can't actually speak on behalf of the uh, the, the clients buying and, and that's where your broker uh, and anybody listening speaking to their broker can actually probably get a really good rounded view um, of peers response to that question all i know is that um the very fact that there are as many markets offering cyber insurance as there are um, and price is absolutely a factor um the fact that we are here and intend to be here for quite some time should suggest that the price is correct um even if it's disagreed with by the end customer uh, and um much like any other type of uh, risk transfer as mentioned um the very fact that we have a market means there's choice and uh, i would have strongly advocate everybody look around and obviously don't take the first um, price that they get. Um, but what I can say in terms of value for money, if we just go back two steps to the technical elements that we're looking at now, um, one kind of value add that anybody buying the product could have is if their own supply chain has good cover or is able to get cyber insurance, that's almost acting on a twofold as a quasi audit. They've been through that very technical underwriting process. And secondly, they've accepted it and paid for it. So there is actual recourse should they find, should the, you know, your end client find themselves in a position where, um, through no fault of their own, one of their supply chain has been impaired in some way. There's recourse for them as a business. Um, so price will always be a challenge, but I would always advocate value for money on the back end. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and, and I guess the flip side to that, if price does become a, a hindrance to anyone or any organization getting, and a policy is that you're only going to know when you get hit. And once you get hit, what's that worth to you? What's worth to your brand, to your livelihood, your revenue? And then as we've been talking about, and as I've been trying to advocate when, when I'm talking to people about this at a technical level, you know, what does that mean for your career? You know, for you for, and literally put food in your, on your table for your family because it's, it's that potentially impacting, right? So if all those are taken into consideration, and then you start to think about the actual business impact. It's, it's a no-brainer. Um, going back to what's what's worse, we, um, a breach where data is lost or a, a an attack where data is encrypted slash destroyed. Both are bad, right? But in your eyes, what do you feel about both type of attack vectors? Because they are different in a way. And we've seen great examples worldwide. I, I'm going to use MGM because it's a big, big recent one and everyone's talk, kind of talking about it. So that's all good in the open. $34 trillion business impacted by a social network, socially engineered um, infiltration. That wasn't even the, the problem with Okta. Okta got blamed, but it wasn't Okta. It was just the, the level of access that they allowed with that elevation privilege. And then all of a sudden their ESX servers were encrypted and you know held to ransom at that point. But then we also yeah. see like the Optus, which was effectively a, a poorly configured API. And that wasn't impactful in terms of data being encrypted or destroyed, but it was more brand because people's personal details are out there. So explain those differences and how you see that. 
I look, um, I'm going to add a third one, which is a combination of both. You can have the double extortion where the Oof. data is stolen and you suffer the encryption. Like, I don't know if there's um, a worse uh, of the three, you know, if it's mm. a choice between a heart attack and a stroke, you know, which would you prefer? Yeah. Um, or good, good analogy. You know, <laughs> um, we, we look at them and um, uh, without wishing to sound too fatalist, there is a certain sense of inevitability within this particular sphere because whether it takes the form of a data breach or an encryption or both, we readily acknowledge that it's going to happen at, at some point to everybody. Um, in terms of what we would prefer, there is no preference. We respond or the, insu the insurance market through our trusted um, instant response providers will will respond to the event howsoever it happens, whether it's the, as you say, misconfigured API and a data loss or uh, a really targeted criminal ex uh, enterprise going after someone like an MGM, very, very targeted attack. The, our industry will respond uh, accordingly. Um, but one thing that the industry is probably the most concerned about now is what we call systemic exposure. Okay. And that is the prevalence of, as we've already all agreed, technology is ubiquitous. Um, rather than uh, you know, a really bad run of tornadoes through a certain part of the US, when it comes to an impairment to technology, it is truly global. Um, Move it's a good example, or even all the way back to um, Sunburst out of uh, the Orion incident. It's not just one or two individual localized areas it is a potentially global event that can impact quite literally thousands of customers uh, with no geographical connection whatsoever and that's the the real concern for us uh, and what we call our reinsurers the people who insure reinsurers or actual insurers and behind the scenes um, is a tremendous amount of work going on on trying to model what that might look like so it means that back to the two or the three examples that we talk about if we have a targeted attack that doesn't just hit, say, one or two individuals, but let's just say really goes for AWS, that will have global ramifications. And our industry yeah. needs to be prepared in order to meet the challenges when something like that were to happen. And that's really what we're concerned with. And as I mentioned, behind the scenes are doing all that we can to make sure that we understand that and model that as, as best we can. Yeah. My biggest fear moving forward is that you kind of hinted at it, that there's going to be a fairly significant global incident, right? Like that's going to hit multiple organizations, multiple people and, and hit a big percentage of, of tech workers, businesses. Um, mm. do you, do you, what do you feel like that? Because I know that at the moment, what I see in the last 12 to 18, 24 months is that every now and every so often you get an MGM. And you get an Optus, mm -hmm. and you and you get a Medibank, and then and then. But what must be happening beneath that? We know, I know, anecdotally because I deal with lots of service providers that work on behalf of other companies. Is that yeah? All these small companies are getting impacted as well. Ransomware recovered, money transfers. They can recover if they've got good tooling like Veeam as, as that toolkit, and then on a holistic approach to security at one end and process at the other end to make the BCDR com compliant. But I really fear for that global event which is going to potentially be worldwide and impacting a lot of people do, do you guys talk about that is there a fear about a, a sort of like Absolutely. i guess you you could probably um equate that to say a super volcano going off like yellowstone yes. if, if yellowstone yes. blows <laughs> or when it blows like we to some extent we've already had that with not petcher back in 2017 and the unintended consequences of what was at the time a very targeted attack between you know at ukraine that then spilled out 
to quite literally the four corners of the world just purely by looking at everybody using very similar computer um, software programs. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, there was, uh, you know, conservatively, conservatively speaking, a $10 billion um, financial impairment um, to, and there were some very, very high profile cases. And here's just one tiny rabbit hole I'm going to jump down. Some of the negative press that was garnered uh, as a result of NotPetya around um, two very, very famous cases, Mondelez and Merck, where the um, allegation at the time was their cyber insurance did not pay for the losses that they sustained through NotPetya. Uh, and that's because the policies that were being invoked at the time were not cyber specific policies. They're actually, uh, in the case of Mondelez, it was a property policy where data had been written back as tangible property. And okay. for Merck, Merck, Merck Pharmaceuticals, it was an all risks policy. And um, uh, they were not designed to be cyber specific. Um, so just a tiny bit of technical information for cyber policies. We don't cover bodily injury or property damage. We're here for the pure financial loss. Um, your property policy will cover you for property damage and your liability policy will cover you for personal injury. We cover the pure financial loss associated with it. So if you wind that back to a global event such as NotPetya, it would ultimately be the loss to operational capacity for any business, as it was back in 2017 when the likes of Maersk Shipping were unable to um do anything actually and you know you had people queued up outside newark terminal because they couldn't get in because everything was shut down um it's the it's the what we call the business interruption loss as a result of a cyber event but we had uh, you know equivalent to a a mini super volcano which is which was not petia and it's those types of events that furiously behind the scenes we're trying our um, insurance industry is doing everything to try and model what a future event might look like and where uh, what's tolerable and what's not tolerable. Um, uh, we won't even talk about war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, yeah. which is a, a whole different world. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think we've, we've already had it, so we're, we're prepared for it um, yeah. in the confines of what we think is insurable. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a lot. Uh, you know, we've spent this 30 or 40 minutes talking about a lot of negative stuff, right? <laughs> um, and <laughs> that's, that's kind it. of the that's a nature, right? But we've got like about four, three or four minutes left. And I just want to, I, I believe that we're just having this conversation, having, you know, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, we're elevating yep. the conversation. We're elevating the, 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 prospect of companies and organizations to be ready for these attacks um so hopefully they don't have to talk to you guys right that's that's, mm. that's the idea um have it in the back pocket but hopefully never do because you got the right tooling so you know where do you see Cybersecurity month uh, or awareness month in in this whole process of, of making people more aware i mean I, I made this comment to on the last podcast we we kind of need Cybersecurity awareness month to be every month every day everyone's responsibility but it's good that we have a month to prep to prop it up and definitely in our industry you know we're looking to be that that t- tech tool that does help if something happens but it's also about peace of mind so the technology is getting better more complicated but it's also getting more sophisticated to be able to help so just in a couple of minutes just talk about how you're you're actually like more positive about where we are than, than, <laughs> than the negativity of it all Absolutely. I think it comes back to culture, any um, education, awareness, anything that we can do or can be done to improve the general hygiene is is absolutely a benefit. And what I'd say here is it's not just in the world of business. I'd actually argue it's in your home life and the day to day life as well. So many elements of this uh, cybersecurity awareness month are so transferable to your day to day. So I think it's just improving and uh, just a general culture around uh, technology, which um, is the ultimate beneficiary for this. Um, and then that translates to, um, and I have to say, you know, if we acknowledge that humans probably might be the weakest link in the whole chain, anything that can be done 
to improve awareness and, and hygiene from a, an individual user perspective, I think is only a plus. Yeah, very good. Um, I had one quick question and then we can wrap mm. it up on that particular point. If a scenario pops up where you've educated your users, you've put everything in place, you've got cyber in, in place, insurance is all there. If a user still gets fished or impacted and they do something wrong, does that mitigate the policy or is it still sort of covered? Is there any levels of, 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 of someone's individual responsibility circumventing the whole policy? Um, it's quite hard. Uh, there's a readily uh, acknowledged that um, you know we are the weakest link, as it were. No one's going to blame anybody for clicking the wrong link. Definitely not. Okay. You know, um, it's a complete acknowledgement that Georgian accounts has to open every single attachment. It just it it, it has to happen. Um, we could completely understand that. No, uh, okay. I mean obviously um, we can't anticipate every event, but yeah. we can tell. You see, yeah, you get what I was getting there. That's awesome. Hey, this has been a great conversation. I wish we could talk for a lot longer, um, but we're going to wrap it up. Great insight. It's really, you know, from this point of view, having this conversation, I think is helpful for, you know, not only the technical people listening to this, the people within Veeam Software, our customers, whoever else is listening to this, because it gives a really different insight to the back end of what everyone's been hearing about for the last 12 months, which is this increase yeah. in cyber attacks the fact that you have to be ready and that having cyber insurance is a massive part of the overall strategy. So, hey, Stephen, thanks for being on the show and um, yeah, we'll catch you next time on The Sound of Tech to Come.